0: Hello listener, welcome back to Excessive Rumination, the podcast with me, John Leo. This is episode 7, and today I am joined in studio by Stuart Penn. Stuart Penn is an interesting character to to have in the podcast today, Uh, not just because he's an adaptive athlete, um, a a stuntman, and... Well, he's he's done a whole load of stuff that we get into in the episode, uh, but he also marks the first time I've had my boss on the podcast, um, which is a title I'm sure Stuart doesn't particularly like the sound of, because the office we work in is very progressive in the way the hierarchy works, but it's the truth, it is what it is, um, and that, as well as many other reasons, is why I look up to Stuart, despite the fact I'm probably two feet taller than him. Uh, which is probably the only thing I've got on him at this point in my life um, Stuart's amazing he's such a funny guy um, ever since I started working at Skills Jersey um, where I've spent much more time with him I've realised exactly what makes him the, the people person that he is that when you when you hear the stories he tells you'll get a glimpse of it as well and you'll realise why this is someone who's, who's had such a fascinating life where connections lead to connections and that's such an important lesson that I think we touched on in this in this episode is that regardless of who you are or what you're doing by inspiring and motivating yourself you open up the channels to to make your life more interesting um, all the best laid plans and predictions of the future can ultimately amount to nothing because so much of life is luck but at the end of the day if you put yourself out there you put yourself out there for the opportunity for things to happen to you Uh, Be they good, be they bad um, As we get into with Stuart Um, This is a conversation I really enjoyed Um, I just want to say thank you to Stuart For coming on the podcast Really appreciate his his candour And his honesty with this one And I hope you enjoy it Without further ado This is Excessive Rumination Episode 7 with Stuart Penn (laughs) Right. <laughs> that Have they given you like any guidelines or anything like do this or any of you guys chatting amongst yourselves?
1: No, there's been no guidelines whatsoever other than uh, what I did, yeah, <laughs> which is good. They free for me. What I did was uh, I took some advice, um, off our experts at work, uh, who said go and just look at other people uh, yeah. that, are, that are similar to what we're doing, what you're doing. So, para athletes, um, there's a guy actually I follow, um, a mate to him because he does jiu jitsu. I've never met him because this is how it works, and mm-hmm. he's in the UK. I think he's a former power, um, but he calls himself the motivator, and he just posts little clips of himself doing daft things, and as well as doing exercise. And things. so I had a look at him because I thought actually if he's um, if he's doing this and what what hashtags he's using, mm-hmm. how he's doing this he seems to be followed quite widely in fact uh, joe rogan commented on one of his posts the other day okay he was uh, was over the moon with that
0: (laughs) (laughs) i bet yeah vindication you've made it
1: (laughs) you've made it so famous commented
0: because it's almost the it's trying to find the balance of being genuine but also being marketable yeah because you don't want to be like this is my shtick and i Hate
1: it. <laughs> yeah, I, I find that a lot of what I do, so even like the, 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 I hate calling them motivational or inspirational speeches, but where I go in and talk and do little talks, because mm. I love doing them, and I go in and talk about myself, and uh, but I, I, I try and keep it genuine. Yeah, because there's nothing worse than going to see a, a motivational, inspirational speaker and just sat there thinking, oh yeah, it's all right for you though, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You, know, you you've got that different thing to plug, and you you can really play it up. Um, so I always try and mi- keep mind and be mindful of when I'm beginning to sound like it's just a stock record and this is my patter, almost like a stand-up routine of that I've course, practiced over yeah. and over again. So whenever I do things, which is why if I do an inspirational speech, I, I ask them what they're after and what it's linked to. Mm. Um, so I've done one for like tra- social workers training and, and and looked at their curriculum and linked my stories. God, do was talk about myself and my life, but I linked it back to bits of their curriculum. Mm. So each time that makes it fresher so that I'm not just... Going in and saying, right, here's the Stuart Penn story, yeah. um, which inevitably gets embellished if I do that. <laughs> of course, yes, <yeah. laughs> so I reckon it's getting better skipping, and better.
0: Skipping chapters, adding bits in. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. it's right because that almost relates to um, Rick Jones, who was on the podcast recently. Hmm. Um, he did a gig that was his like first gig in like five years, and he was saying um, he played a song that's a, a very personal one to him. And I asked him how it was to play it, and he said. I had to stop playing it for a while because I'd been playing it so much that I'd lost the, the like the sincerity in it. Yeah, and it's kind of like you're saying, like if you just keep going, like and here's why you should be motivated <laughs> because I've done this. Yeah, look like, at me. Do I care now? I'm not even motivating myself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is. There's there's one story I dropped in only a couple of years ago um, into my, my one of my talks, and it was about. Um, coping with or growing up and um, acknowledging that you are different and actually why people stare at you. So uh, and, and when I first dropped it in, I'll tell you the story in a minute, but when I first dropped it in, I used to get quite emotional and actually uh, catching my throat a couple of times, mm. which is great in front of an audience because they can see genuine emotion. Um, and then I got to the point recently where I was just reeling it off, just mm. reeling the story off. And I thought, yes, yeah, kind of lost that a little bit. So I, I took it out for a while. Mm. And the story was, it was when I was, say I was about six years old, and people always used to stare at me because I'd walk around in shorts and t-shirts my my parents would joke that we'd go to the beach on holiday, they'd take my top off and my arm would come off, so everyone on the beach would start staring, then they'd take my trousers off and my leg would come off, <laughs> and you could see people just watching me go. Oh, good lord, what's going to come off next? <laughs> and, uh, and then, so, but I used to get really upset about it of as course, a kid, because yeah. it was weird, you know, people staring at me wherever I went and I walked funny and looked funny because I didn't wear prosthetic arms either uh, and there was one time on holiday um, my dad caught me staring at a kid with sober. Uh, and I was standing and my dad just waited calmly. And he said, uh, I went to the kid again. He said, Well, what were you doing? And I went, Oh, I was just oh, oh, oh I was just looking at that guy, that that lad there, that kid. And in the back of my mind, I remember thinking, Oh my god, I've just done what everyone does to me. Mm. And uh, and he said, Well, what were you thinking? I said, uh, after I said I was just thinking it was a bit different. I said, you know, I was just curious. So, you know, I thought, oh, look at that kid doing that. And they're always doing this. And they said, oh, wow, look at that. And my dad just said, well, that's what people think when they see you. And then from that point on, I've never had a problem with people staring at me. So I was mm. just like, okay, I get it. I wasn't thinking anything negative. I'm, maybe some people will be. I don't know. But in general, I took the message that people are staring at me. It's them learning. And they're just curious. And it doesn't matter. So there's no reason to get upset about it. So you can see that story. I mean, even then, I'm starting to feel yeah, a little bit because yeah. I'm getting the emotion back for it now because it's not a story I, t- I tell that often anymore. Um, but it, it, it's one of those if you can tell, uh, use something from your life with a bit of emotion, a bit of genuine genuineness—even mm. a word—then <laughs> <laughs> it helps get the message across rather than just sitting there going, "Well, you know, if you wear a short all sure, right?" Because you can look at this; it yeah. doesn't get the same message across. Of
0: course, <laughs> I feel that's such an important element of of this. I feel like the conversation we'll have as well is that obviously the whole like parents like oh, don't stare obviously staring is you know it's not a fun experience to have regardless of how you look if someone's just staring at you that's uncomfortable but for especially for children i feel children are inquisitive and they 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 like expunge information from the universe by looking at it yeah by trying to go okay i understand this thing and that looks like this thing but how does it relate and, yeah, they don't have social etiquette at that age
1: because yeah. that's a taught thing. No, And it's great. You, even now, it was the other day at the zoo on Sunday, you, know, you get kids coming over you out of the blue and just asking you. I mean, I, I wow. when I'm not at work in my civil service you know, dress-up code, um, I wear shorts all the time and mm. wear t and, and kids come up and they'll, they'll ask me and they'll talk to me. And you can see the parents, bless them, dying inside a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> but part <laughs> of them and, is and like, freaking, I'm, I really want to know well, the that, answer. As well. they're, they're just curious as well, but yeah. they, they, don't, they don't want to ask it it's what I decided to do was when, when my kids were older, I started training them to, to answer. Mm. So actually then my kids would reply back and tell this kid in their own words, what, why daddy had these metal bits or, or plastic bits on and what, what it was to make it feel more normal to the kids. And also mm. then I think that helped the parents because they could obviously see it was a bit of a bit staged almost because i would go, oh, you know, yeah, no, my, my boy here will tell you about why, why I wear these. Mm. Um, and it did it seem to help.
0: How, well, I'm, we'll get on to... Your your role as, as as a family man in a bit, but let's let's start from scratch. So, at what point did you kind of gain an awareness like I'm different?
1: Mm. Uh, I can't remember when because I think it would have been almost straight away when I was a kid just Mm. growing up I can just remember that I was always different there was always a point of um, my my dad and my mum wanted me to go to a normal school so even as young as the age of five and six going to that school was a a big thing they'd push for me to go to a normal school because in those days you know you're talking the the, the early 80s there was still special schools and disabled children were meant to go to special schools to be looked after and have different and my parents didn't want that they wanted me to go to a normal school Mm. Um, so for me I think it was more like I knew I was different but I was living a normal life, and it was in my mind that I was normal. I've never had that issue, you know. Although I know it, I've never had the issue of, oh, this is holding me back. Few dark moments in your life. Everyone does it. You might blame your disability, but in general, I've always been okay. Well, I'm just going to live as normal life as I can. But it, I knew it from from the yeah was a very young age that I was different. Especially because um, prosthetics and things in those days were not as good as they are now. I mean, my my first legs were literally wooden tree trunks. That's wow. that's all they were with leather belts strapping them on. In fact, the first one didn't even have a foot on it. It was literally a peg leg like a pirate. You, know, you imagine. So apparently I was very upset by that. <laughs> and that uh, <laughs> leads down to a lot of what I, I, I do is that I just find simple ways to adapt so and it comes from my parents because w- when they were given this peg leg for this little four or five year old I suppose it was you know apparently I burst into tears because mm. I just wanted the two feet I went to look down and see two feet on there so my parents were dead they, dead savage they just got a boot and sellotape this boot onto the end of this peg leg and I was happy so a lot of what I've learned is from them and a lot of it is always about just adapting things as simply as possible mm. uh, and finding ways to get what you want to that might be a little bit different. Um, And not necessarily the the way you think you would do things. So I always remember that. And these wooden legs would have to be made about six inches too long because obviously kids grow. So, you know, try walking with a leg that's one one leg is six inches longer than the other one. So walking would be difficult. So I was always very slow, you know, couldn't keep up with the other kids at Mm. school. would join in with the sports, uh, but I'd, I'd never, and it's probably why I'm not that competitive. I'd never be competing against anyone. You know, I'd never want to be better than someone else because I knew that I wasn't going to do it. You know, mm. I was the kid there with the, the wooden leg. I couldn't race them, I couldn't keep... But I'd still join in, and I wouldn't be bothered if I lost or if I came last or if actually in football I just stood in goal and watched balls go past me. Um, because I, I knew I was different, and but I was happy with that. Mm. And it would always be about me doing better okay. as opposed to competing against someone else.
0: I'm interested then what you think about participation trophies. Mm. Because I feel that you... If you were um, in primary school in this day and age, yeah. it would be very much like, we've got to give Stuart something, because he's definitely not going to win, <laughs> you know, but we've got to, you know, make him feel included. Yeah. But what do you feel about that?
1: Uh, I don't think they should get him. Yeah. Uh, controversially, I think, you know, kids should lose. Um, we talk about building resilience in kids nowadays, um, and, and the, the kids... Sh- struggle to have resilience because they're not used to to losing Um, or having that message that they are different and actually that's okay Mm. Um, you know you you see one my um, oldest lad has got his his legs are fine now but he had physio on his legs for years and he still can't run as fast as everyone else so on sports days he'd always come last but we loved it oh I'm getting emotional (laughs) but we loved it he loved it because he knew I didn't care he didn't care and we'd celebrate it Mm. so it's that it's that learning to overcome things and he's as resilient as me if you like you know Mm. he can be really resilient to things because he knows that he's always going to be right he's always going to overcome it Mm. and I think if you just award everyone and people don't learn that lesson then there's no kind of difference in there.
0: The way I'm thinking of it is almost comes back to what you're saying with your parents and I'm curious because for me it's like the support network is what matters in that situation because it's like if it's you on your own and you're just you're entering races and you're losing that sucks but if you've got people around you like not only does winning not matter but coming last also doesn't matter yeah there's something positive to gain from this
1: definitely right it is the support mechanism around them you know it's it's learning and adapting that you have got things that you're good at Mm. you know it's everyone being able to identify that whereas again if we award everyone for being good at everything you don't learn that you don't Mm. learn that okay i'm not very good at that or or actually that's really difficult for me but i can be good at this and this is what i've got we don't tend to focus then we just just cruise through everything um, I think some uh, the modern day as well, there's so many choices for us. Yeah, if I think about kids and sports, when I was young, you, you, you did like one sports thing after school, that was it. Because there weren't many clubs around, you know, martial arts, for example, you'd go and do one, you'd stick with that one. Mm. You wouldn't then go and bounce around lots of, oh, I'm not very good at that one, let's go and do that one. Mm. You'd either stick at it or you'd learn you weren't very good at it and you'd just get better yourself or as far as you could go with it.
0: Mm with with your parents do you know do you ever know like was it something they struggled with adapting to having you
1: um i don't think so i think they they very much took the approach of we're just going to get him to be as normal as possible mm. um you know very much they would leave me to to, to do things and work them out myself mm. you know the classics of tying shoelaces but the support back to the sport the sport would be there but they'd let me do it so it would be you know probably child abuse nowadays. (laughs) They'd let me sit there and try and tie tie my shoelaces up with my one hand myself, you know. And they'd give guidance and support, of course they would, but, um, you know, they'd leave it to me. They wouldn't rescue me. There wasn't always that constant rescuing that we we Mm. sometimes see in modern day life.
0: I'm just, I'm, in my head I'm trying to think how you tie a shoelace with one hand oh, <laughs> it sounds impossible it's, it's really easy <laughs> really? yeah you just got to learn <laughs> but you're just like why doesn't Velcro exist right <laughs> yeah, now <laughs> yeah, yeah. well that again
1: in those days it, Velcro shoes were rare but you could get them yeah. but it was that actually don't always take the easy way out okay you yeah know, keep find the more difficult ways or the normal ways and mm. see if you can do that first um, I'm quite critical of um, when you get too many adaptations that make you life too easy. Mm. Um, I think the only thing I had that was adapted as a kid was that I had a fork that had one side of it was a knife as well okay. and that was the only adapted piece of thing we had in our house. Uh, I think that was just more of a gimmick as well because as a kid I probably liked the look of it. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I've always case of, well, you know, yes if you need it and depending on your level of disabilities yes have the adaptations but try it without first. Yeah, Try it without. Um, uh, something I used to do whenever I speak to people who've lost their legs recently and, and I've done it a couple of times is i'd chat to them about how to cope with life and how not to rely too much on your prosthetics Mm. and things and while uh, quite often i'd talk to them and move their leg so it was away from them so it'd be the other side of the room and then at the end of the conversation you know i'd say goodbye shake hands and that and and then just leave them there with their leg over the other side of the room Mm. um and and there was one guy in particular i know he he turned around just as i was leaving and said could you pass me my leg before you go i just said nah left him to it because <laughs> the whole, yeah. whole chat was about don't become too reliant don't, yeah. don't rely on these things I think we could get across there as a physically healthy guy it was yeah. fit. Oh, yeah. he could hop he could roll he could crawl if he needed to mm-hmm. he could get to that leg but we do rely on uh, things you know and I've, I've always been a fan of just find a way that you adapt it or you adapt the world uh, to you, mm. um, rather than having to rely on something to come in and rescue you again, I suppose.
0: Because mm. you only have to see people if you take away their phone for a few hours, they're like, "Oh my god, my support network, where's it gone?" <laughs> yeah. And you know, to think you you rely on prosthetics to get you around. So, like, well, what happens if I don't have these? Yeah, like surely that's that's always in your in the back of your head. And for people. You know um for children growing to teenage and everything like that, that development stage of going you you do have these prosthetics you n- you need them to walk and everything, but you don't need them to you know
1: yeah and you're right and, and I think it's, it's easy to see it and I, quite often when I'm talking I do take the whole line of you know this, it's easy for me to say this because I've always had to do that mm. you know if I wanted to do something I had to find a way of doing it myself able-bodied people don't necessarily have that those sort of challenges as regularly as I would have had them and it is a case of yeah okay, how can I cope without that how could I challenge myself to do that differently um, without taking the easy options um, and the, the prosthetic is the mobility thing is, is brilliant and because we've all got it in us I mean there's the cliched fingers, it? and its how many times does a, a child fall over when they're learning to walk mm. as a toddler? but they keep going you, they, you don't see any one of us as an adult still crawling around saying no I, ne- I gave up I never bothered learning to walk it was easier to crawl why do we That's all crawl true, this yeah. is a lot easier <laughs> you don't see that and, um, when I used to work with the military and we used to have loads of a- amputees or disabled guys and we, we'd have to get out to places um, for casual dissimulation to hide and then ambush the troops and they'd treat us and we'd be made up and of course you couldn't take wheelchairs or limbs or crutches out on out onto the field like that sometimes it'd be two or three miles so we we had to adapt and learn ways to walk whether it was walking on our stumps or whether all-terrain skateboards we started using because we could hide them in day sack so it's back to that how do you find a different way of doing this to make it as believable as possible rather than relying on a prosthetic or someone else and it's that constant Challenge. um, There's always an easy way out that you need sometimes, (laughs) though. Of course, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Well,
0: because it's interesting. I had a chat with um, my um, counselling tutor at one point, and we were talking about resilience. And he Mm. just made this this claim that I've never heard anyone make. It's like I don't think we should teach resilience. I was like, but what? (laughs) Why? And he was like, I just think that surely the ideal situation for the world is a world where we don't need resilience. And it was more of a philosophical kind of point, not a don't teach resilience because it's it's useless, but just going... Resilience is seen as like an endearing trait in someone. It's good to be resilient. But he was making the point of, in an ideal world, we wouldn't be resilient. We would just be affected by whatever happens to us and we can, you know, express it. And then we would have support networks around us to go through it. And that's society. That's not the society we have. But yeah, just it always stuck with me. That's an odd one because... I feel like buzzwords like resilience and inspiration must fly around your life quite a lot.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's an interesting point it makes there because it is, isn't it? It's, it? Why should we teach resilience? Could there be a world or could there be a place where we don't need to be resilient? And uh, I think there probably could be. You'd have to be alone in a hut on your own. Yeah, <laughs> Audrey, you could in- yeah. interact with other people to do it. Um, but you're right, it does. I mean, res- resilience and motivations, but it does... You. you I hear that a lot and again you're back to don't take it too much to heart it's the, it's the classic of don't believe your own press isn't it you've got mm. to still bring yourself back down to earth you've still got to remember that you are just you and you are just doing these things and like I said it's i reflect it in that I say it's easy for me to to, to sit there and just go oh look at me it's great I can mm. do that because I get all those challenges all the time. Even now, I've injured my thumb, so I'm learning how to do it with just four fingers instead of, you know, entire shoelaces, just four fingers. And that's great, because I see it as fun and I see it as a challenge. Okay, you know? yeah. I don't see it as, oh, look, poor me, I'm going to take a week off because I've hurt my thumb and I can't do anything at mm-hmm. work anymore. It, it's that, uh, okay, I'll just, just carry on and do it. But if I haven't have had all those experiences, then, yeah, probably I wouldn't mm. want to have that challenge. I wouldn't want to push myself forwards, because I see it as exactly that. I see it as a challenge. I don't see it as, oh... I can't do this now
0: well yeah because if, if for whatever reason I don't know how this would happen but if I just broke both of my thumbs um, and I, <laughs> I had to go at tying my shoelaces with just like my index and forefinger I'd be like mm. this is awful <laughs> I'm not going to work like this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I need some slip-ons or something yeah, but it would be it would be such a monumental challenge for something so inane because those aren't challenges that I've faced and that's that's always been something that I've struggled with with Um, the idea of resilience and i think people want to present that their life has been more difficult than it has been because we don't like the idea of there's nothing glorious about saying oh no my life's been pretty easy so i even found this early on with with mental health stuff is if i could slip in the word clinically in front of depressed that made it seem more intense because loads yeah. of people are depressed, but well, I was clinically depressed, you know, <laughs> which just makes it seem like, okay, now he's got a story worth listening to, and it's just such a weird, like, act of game gamesmanship between people.
1: Yeah, it's, you, you want it to be real, and you want it to be something that people can hold on to, yeah. <laughs>
0: um, so, what I'd like to do is kind of, like, go through a timeline of your life, and, like, almost at the challenges and the adaptations you've kind of had to go through with it, so primary school kind of talking about sports day and that so that's being aware that you're different but it's okay essentially it's okay to lose because lose is is a word you know it It matters as much as that word matters to you um going into secondary school then what was that experience like like being a teenager
1: yeah i I mean, being a teenager, it's, it's, I always used to get that classic of you know, oh, you must have been bullied at school, uh, and I wasn't bullied because I, I was a confident and sometimes aggressive little shit. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I, did, I didn't get bullied, and it, it, it's similar to when people say to me, oh, you know, you, you, you must have a good story because your life must have been difficult, and, and I quite often find myself saying, well, no, my life's been all right actually. I, I've mm. had, I, I wouldn't say I've had any difficulties, uh, and it's that curveball because again, it's just natural for me to mm. the things that like the broken phones you mentioned that it's not that's not difficult to me it's just another challenge that you then overcome um but I do remember secondary school obviously you got the teenagers you got the you you've you got the hormones flying mm. around you you know you look different as well and also I'd, I'd put quite a bit of weight on because at that point I couldn't walk very far couldn't run very far because of the wooden legs um which is when I then found martial arts is so it was a case of you know I need to do something because this is getting unhealthy now um and for, I, I did do though for a while but then I moved into taekwondo very early in my teens so literally around about 13 i think i was when i moved into taekwondo and that was all about body image i suppose it was a Mm -hmm. case of okay i know i need to lose weight and i want to have a hobby and i want a way of doing it to get myself feeling normal again i suppose Um, it's a strange one because people say well you, you often say that about feeling normal and being normal but I also don't care about feeling normal mm. or being normal, but probably at the time I did, you yeah. know, I did want to feel normal and, and, and be normal, I've just come out the other side of that now, yeah. uh, it's, just, it's classic teenagerhood, isn't it? Of you course yeah. you and, just want to fit in, don't you? Yeah. Um, so I did, you know, at that point teenager the, the martial arts for me were, were huge in uh, giving me the confidence probably that I've got now, uh, but also supporting me through teenage years, uh, because it gave you something to hang your hat on, you got this this thing you were dedicated to, you got this thing you would go to a few times a week where it, the rest of the teenage rubbish and, uh, wouldn't matter because mm. you'd be learning your patterns you'd be doing your sparring you'd feel good about yourself when you come out so uh, for me uh, surviving secondary school I think definitely links to actually having the martial art the, mm. the taekwondo side of it, um, it, it the, when we first started taekwondo the instructor did make the classic joke Well, he didn't mean to say it but it, w- w- my dad went and spoke to him before and said oh, he start? he's only got one leg um, and he classically turned around and said "Well, yeah, yeah it should be Right, but we'll have to get him and because if he breaks his leg he won't have a leg to stand on oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> an awkward moment but, <laughs> but again very much and I don't know if my dad prepped him or what very much in the, those taekwondo lessons I was treated as normal were, okay, they, wow. I was just put in the class there was no airs and graces about it I did what everyone else did mm. the only slight exception was we used to they're probably still doing taekwondo There's run round at the start mm. and this was this was back when say, martial arts were not as commercialized you know you're talking the late 80s so it was quite a rough physical sport. Mm. And they'd spend at least an hour, uh, well, half of the hour running round at the start. Oh, wow. Um, and, of course, I was turning up and doing what, exactly what I did at school. If it was cross-country, I'd either bimble along or I'd do nothing. I'd just sit at the side and wait. Yeah. Um, I suppose a bit of lazy teenage stuff in there, too. Um, and I, the, the instructor came over to me after a few lessons and said, look, you know, you you're sat at the side. Your dad's paying for these lessons. And you're doing nothing. You know, you just sat there. Why not you just do something and I think that is one of the best bits of advice I've ever had mm. from anyone, is if you sat there doing nothing and you're an observer in life, just, just go out and do something. So I went over and stood in the corner. There's a rectangular room. They're running in a circle. There's a big space in the corner. And I stood in the corner and just, just started throwing punches and drilling punches. Mm. And the instructor was like, great, that's it. And he comes over and said, that's what we'll do. He says, when we're running around, you come and I'll give you things to drill. So again, it was a case of, I'm I'm joining in again. I'm I'm acting. I'm I'm not just this observer sat on the side, talking about being disabled or or even in some ways relishing as a teenager. Mm. You'd relish that. Oh, I'm special. I don't need to join in. Look (laughs) at me. Um, But now I'm in the corner and I'm doing something. I'm getting physically fit through it. Hmm.
0: So was... Was that early martial arts instructor, like, was that always a a good experience martial arts? Or were there times where it's like... Because it is physically demanding. Taekwondo is obviously a martial art built predominantly around kicks. You've got one leg. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, how was it always an enjoyable experience or were there times where you're like why the hell am I doing this
1: ah, there was always times of why the hell am I doing this? like you said I mean I'm sure my dad was, was taking the mickey taking me to a taekwondo class I mean <laughs> I'd asked him to take me but uh, I suppose in those days we didn't know what taekwondo was but if you're gonna do an art why would you do one that's around flying kicks and spreader kicks when you've not only got one leg but also your other legs not built properly <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was it was difficult I mean especially thankfully technology caught up with me because yeah, the I started to have the kind of sockets that I have now which are carbon fiber and they they streamline them based on your leg as opposed to a piece of wood that's carved by a carpenter. Mm. The hydraulic knees started to come in then as well. So I started to get where I could do more and more um, it was quite often the, the challenge for, was trying to get the leg to stay on um, I v- remember vividly the first time I did a flying sidekick kick and watched my leg fly <laughs> off in front of me um, and thought how the hell am I going to land um, <laughs> quite, the solution at the time was just to put loads more cotton socks on Okay. and of course what happens to cotton when it gets wet mm. is it gets really hard so it, it, the sores on the legs and I remember one training weekend we went on emptying the blood out of my leg after we'd finished one of the two hours sessions uh, and it was just mixed with sweat but it looked very dramatic as it came out it looked like I'd lost about two pints of blood um, so you know it's difficult and it's challenging and it's that you know I, I used to compete with able-bodied people as well um, again back to I didn't know no difference I was turning up and just just competing um, but you know you think man I used to lose a lot mm. uh, but kept going back and I thought no wonder I used to lose a lot it was in an art with lots of kicking my legs are short I'm short and I was fighting people massive
0: <laughs> do you ever know like how they felt about it?
1: Uh, well, I, I know the jokes from, you know, obviously it's become a community and train more that, you know, because I pad up my leg like everyone else would. Um, you know, I just wear the same pads that they mm. would, but more of them. But that, generally they're down the bottom of the leg. Mm. So the top half of the leg and the thigh were unpadded. And um, obviously people used to t- be terrified because if you throw a kick and I'm throwing the kick at the same time, it's gonna, my carbon fibre is going to smash against your <laughs> flesh and bones. <boat. laughs> yeah. So, yeah, people used to, I think... I like to think, and yeah, from the feedback I've got and the way they treated me even all the way through to black belt gradings and things, there was never any dispensation. I did everything everyone else did, including the destruction. Um, mm. So even, which you would think would be easier with prosthetic limbs, it's more difficult because the ends of the prosthetic limbs are rubber. Yeah. Um, so they bounce off the boards, but it wasn't a case of, oh, it's all right, he doesn't need to do that. It was because no, you've got to find a way of breaking those. So yeah. I'd move to elbows and things and knees because then, that's the hard bits of my legs and course, yeah. um so there was never any dispensation and I think I earned the respect of people, you know, from what they say because I just did everything they did and it was it was never it was never a case of, oh here comes you know, the poor little cripple, let him in and let him have a go. It was always a case of there's Stuart and then oh oh yeah, and by the way mm. <laughs> Watch out for that leg. <laughs> yeah, yeah, watch out for that leg because it hurts.
0: <laughs> so teenage years you begin martial arts maybe with a bit of body confidence mm-hmm. going on, which yep. you could say is Almost regardless of the way you are, is just that's being a teenager yeah. and you found that through martial arts. I only ask this because I know you're married and you have several kids, but what was dating like for you as a teenager?
1: This is a really funny point, because when I used to work with military personnel and people that had accidents, one of the first things they'd often ask us about, is because they couldn't really ask the padres and the doctors, was, oh, how's sex going to work? How's dating going to work now? Mm. And, oh, man, I'm just going to be ugly because I look so... I used to just say, "Man, it's the best child line in the book." I mean, I used to just milk it for all it was worth. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you got one arm, one leg, you stand out from the crowd. You know, if you're yeah. chatting to someone who doesn't seem that interested in you, but you want them to be interested, then you you start dropping that in, and, and that soon opens a conversation. <laughs> mm. Everyone wants to know how it might work, or how they how their legs work, or how you cope with things. So, uh, dating, I would say, it was never really an issue because I'm sure it was at some point, especially the confidence to go and talk to girls in the first place. But I've never had an issue with it again, I suppose, because I, I, I and I, I sh- unashamedly admit, I use my disability to, to do the, to get messages across. Mm. Now, whether that's the message, oh, I want to chat with this girl, and I'm going to use them as a, as a, as a tool to get me in there, mm-hmm. or whether it's um, when I'm giving certain talks, and I want to get a message across, oh, I'll show my legs, or show my arms off. It, you know, I do unashamedly use them in that way too. And like, I did, definitely did for dating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, you've got to. Yeah. Um, so, coming out of your teenage years, so at what point do you join um, the armed forces?
1: I didn't. I worked. Um, I worked with the military much later in life. So, coming out of my teenage years, I ended up going into uh, disabled athletics. Okay, and doing sprinting. Um, uh, I, I hate running, so I don't know why I did that. i <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> established that you lost a lot of races. Uh, yeah, I lost a lot of races. I'm not, I'm not competitive. Yeah. And before I do it, um, it, again at that point, uh, the Paralympics wasn't like it is now. Mm. The Paralympics were not this big thing where everyone was wow about it. You know, mm. it was it was very under the table. Um, and I was contacted because I did the Taekwondo, because I did a few interviews in there. And, and at my limb center in Salioka I was the guy they used to test things on. Um, so I got they said, come along and have a go at the Disabled athletics. So I did. And I joined that and would do sprinting and long jumps I did a couple of international competitions. Um, but I was never really that into it. However, what came from that was I met a great bunch of guys because all of a sudden I was around a lot of people with limbs missing, which I'd never really been around before. So the guys and girls got to know them and it was it was great to kind of see people with different um uh, disabilities also different attitudes because that you know you- People that people that know me and this kind of can-do attitude that, I, that I, I just inherently have, just assume lots of every disabled people have that, and and they don't. Yeah, we're, we're all normal. We're all mm. the same as you know, get a bunch of blokes in the room just because they like football doesn't mean they're all going to be at the same person and have mm. the same attitudes. And it was like that seeing that actually people with arms and legs had different attitudes too, um, positively or negatively. Yeah, um, so that was interesting to be around them. But also, what came from that was we then got contacted by a tv company uh to come and do some um dead body work basically come along i think it was for soldier soldier or something like that It was it's that long ago now and and they come to the disabled athletics team because they wanted fit young blokes mm. um and would come along and be dead bodies. And it wasn't long before Private Ryan was being filmed, so we then naturally tripped onto that. So the best thing to come from my athletics career that I, I hated um, was that I got into the, the TV and movie industry and, mm. and just playing extras to begin with. you go along, you'd get 60 quid in your back pocket and you'd lie around in the field for ages um, <laughs> with other people with limbs missing. Uh, what was fascinating for me, though, was, was you would turn them and they really didn't know how to treat you. Yeah. And it was very much the, oh, my God who are these aliens that have been dropped on us and we don't know what to do with them. Um, And myself and a couple of the regular guys, we started doing more and more because we enjoyed it and we're all fit and we're all reasonably young and we're all competent. So we started pushing it and a lot of what we did would be with stunt teams anyway. So because we'd get chatting to the stunt guys and we'd get all excited and we'd start pushing more and more of how we could be used. Mm. Um, I mean, it started off as simple as there's no need to sit us in a special corner and bring us teas and coffees. We'll just merge in with all the other extras. Mm -hmm. And then it was a case of, look, there's no need to wheel us out and put us on a blanket on the floor. We We can just go hop out and we can get on that floor for you. Then with the next stage was, look, if this is meant to be an explosion, do you not want to see us just before or just after rather than... Two minutes after and we're lying on the floor screaming, do you want us to fall off that car? Do you want us to mm. fall out that window? Do you want to set the explosion of us? And we just started pushing it. Um, and it was, it was about five of us. We were just regular guys. And we'd never, yeah, this was before the age of social media and even mobile phones, really. Mm. So we never knew each other. We just would happen to turn up on the same set and know each other because we were athletics and um, film industry. And we just started doing more and pushing more saying well can we do this why don't you do this why don't you get us doing this and of course the the, the, the film industry if they love anything it's something that someone that's keen and can do stuff that will save them money yeah. um, so we started doing more of that and we started seeing more and, and getting involved more and also then obviously wanting to be paid more um, so anyway long story short we did lots of stuff and then a couple of the guys formed their own agency uh, called Amputees in Action and brought me on board because uh, they knew me and there was the five of us uh, and we started pushing to get paid more and we had a great reputation with the stunt teams and some of the high level stunt guys so they they backed us up so we ended up getting paid stunt pay we would go on stunt we'd be part of the stunt team as opposed to extras mm. um which is just that little bit of extra kudos uh, and we, you know we set up a great little association there that then led into one of the guys well i think i had the five of us three of them were ex-military um, and iraq was around about that time i think and so we got contacted one of the guys got contacted by the surgeon who operated on him to say would you guys come and do what you do in the film industry but for live troops, so they can train on live soldiers, bring those special effects people. So we did. So mm. you know, we went along, and before you knew it, we have got a couple of hundred amputees employed by us. We were going around. No, I think it was no British, uh, or maybe American and Scandinavian, but definitely no British troops could go out to theatre or to war without going through our training. Yeah. And we would, we would go everywhere. And again, when we first got into military stuff, it was back to the same as the film industry. What to do with them? Who are these guys? What are we going to do with them? Sit them in the corner and, and fetch and carry them and put blankets down for them. So we started the whole thing again of, no, we can do this. No, we can do that. We could why don't you lose, use us on live fire? What, how can we solve this for you? Um, and that kind of attitude I've always had uh, that is still in my, in my parents about adapt situations and find solutions, no matter how logical they are or mm. illogical sometimes, we brought that to it as well. Uh, one, one great story is once we were, um, there was a, a, a set up of FOB, so it's a training exercise, a forward operating base and there was nothing around it um, and the idea was they wanted to get a, um, a sort of a casualty simulation player into this field so that they would have to come out of the FOB and obviously they'd be testing how they do it and their security mm. and all this to collect this body and they didn't know how they were going to do it, they were like, how do we get you guys in situ without them seeing you? We didn't want to do a comedy 20 metre hop where we hop from the finger all made up with our blood and gauze and then lie down and start screaming as they always just shouted action. Mm-hmm. So a couple of us were just chatting. We said, "Well, look, we do stunt work. Would you normally drive around?" They were like, "Yeah, yeah, we got a, a DS, a, dr- uh, a drilling instructor car. We would be driving around anyway." We said, all right "As you drive around, there's a tree there. As you go past that tree, I'll jump out the car, and then they won't see me getting into situation." So we did that. You know we'd drive past, we'd open the door, we'd jump out um just as we passed the tree, so that the guys in the farb couldn't see us. So it was, it was bringing that kind of attitude to the casual simulation training, and you know, it was about ten years. And we went, we went all around the world of it and, and trained with lots of guys in all sorts of situations and met lots of amazing people, mm. both with you know, disabilities and those guys that work in the armed forces normally.
0: Because there was a story you told me once that involved a helicopter. <laughs> Did this you is, be so kind? <laughs> this is the
1: classic story I get so much stick about from, <laughs> from people. So, we were, um, we, we used to get uh, casualty backed out. So, we, we, we would get, you know, they'd find us in the middle of a field or there'd be a situation that had gone off and, and we'd, they'd want to drill all the way through. So, not just test the guys who were there at the scene, scene of impact, how they treated us medically, but also how they casualty backed us out all the way out, including putting you on a helicopter and, and doing a handover and then flying off. Um, and the one time they'd strapped me. Uh, let me get this right. Now they put me on the stretcher uh, and I was all ready to go. They treated me. They'd done a brilliant job. They carried me over to the helicopter. They handed me over to the MERT team and explained what was wrong with me. The MERT team carried me into the stretcher. Perfect. They strapped the stretcher to the body of the aircraft, which is what they're meant to do. What hadn't been handed over was the fact that the stretcher was on, had no straps on so it wasn't i wasn't strapped to the stretcher and of course they, they, they did the combat evac straight out of there went straight up and they fly with the, the back barrier open the back ramp open because mm. obviously there's a gunner on the ramp and of course as they took off and flew out i just slid straight down um, out of the out of the stretcher or straight out of the helicopter fortunately something we always taught the guys the new guys when we were training them is always try and have your hands free for any reason it can be a rifle butt might swing and hit you you want to be able to block it, it might, you know, it could be something's going to fall on you. You want to have your hands mm-hmm. free, because although you're playing a casualty, you don't want to end up being of a course, real casualty. Yeah. Uh, so fortunately, as we went, as it took off and I flew down, there was like webbing under the seats, and I managed to grab the webbing, and just whoosh, legs went out, and then pulled back in again. Um, and it's just one of those stories that's got, to, you know, over the years, it's a case of, oh, I fell out of the back of a helicopter. And, and it was, but I was probably only out there for less than a second, because I grabbed hold of the thing, swung out the gun, and grabbed me, pulled me back in again, uh, and <laughs> panic over. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous. That must have been absolutely terrifying. Uh, it was. The, it wasn't the most terrifying thing that ever happened to me, though. There was a couple of things that happened, uh, and it was, it was it was it was a dangerous job. We were insured for it, and we were risk assessed and everything. We'd only do you know, things within the the remit, the military. But accidents happen, um, and there were some very hairy moments. It certainly wasn't as dangerous as being a soldier, though. Uh, <laughs> mm. <laughs> one of my favourite accidents was uh, uh, a <laughs> They... Uh, this was when they used to use hemcon that was powder. So that's you'd pour powder into the wound and it'd burn it shut. Um, okay. And they happened to, I was doing a drill and they were practicing. It was it was a quite a stale one. It was a talk-through walk-through. Um, so the guy who was doing it had ripped open this hemcon, looked at him and went, oh, no, this is real stuff. This isn't the training one. And everyone's joking. Oh, be careful. And I'm still acting, in, even though it was a walk-through talk to, him, I'm still acting the casualty, so I'm still screaming a bit. Anyway, as he said that, he flicked it. And as he flicked it, all the powder came out and went straight into my eyes. Uh, And I mean, you can imagine what if it burns a wound shut. Um, Thankfully, because they were all doctors there, traded on me, I was in the perfect place to have that sort of accident (laughs) happen. You know, they responded straight away, washed my eyes out, got it all sorted to the point where they wanted to take me off the hospital. I said, no, that's all fine, because that'll ruin the rest of the day's training. So I stayed and did the rest of the training for them.
0: Fucking hell. Come on. He's just like, yeah, it's all right.
1: Accidents happen. Yeah, I can see. It's fine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It takes us into an interesting um, point, which is talking about ableism. And it's one of those really interesting topics for me because, as someone who doesn't identify with any kind of physical disability, Mm -hmm. reading stuff on Instagram about this is how you're supposed to talk to people, no, this is how you're supposed to talk to people. And it's like, it's a minefield. But. even like kind of as you're saying, like even in the military or or working on films back in the '80s, people mm. were still like, we don't want to say anything to upset you. We we you know we want to treat you treat you normally, but we, we don't treat you normally. We've got to treat you differently, <laughs> but normally. And it's just like, what what does ableism even mean to you?
1: I think it is a minefield. It's a mine. I always say, look, just treat people normal, but that's really difficult because mm. they're not necessarily and. It's not controversial, but I quite often put it back on the the people with the disabilities themselves in that, you know, you 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 get treated how you treat yourself. Um, the, the military, one of the first jobs when we realised, well, we pushed to go on a, the, a live exercise and we, we realised going on to it, this was a big risk for the military. So myself and the guy who went on it, we said, right, we've really got to prove that they can just treat us as normal, that actually we're not made of cotton wool, you can just treat us. So we made sure, not only were we professional, but every night we were the first ones in the bar and the last one's out. Because that was the way to win over that, those mm. kind of people. It was to show them, yeah, we're normal. we're drinking with you, we're chatting with you. And before you knew it, all the airs and graces had dropped. And I think you can, <laughs> strange message, but you can put that across <laughs> to all sorts of walks of life. Is actually you, the way you want to be treated is the way you need to treat yourself. Mm. Um, so when people are like, well, you know, how, how do we talk to people with disabilities? How do you, I, I think it's, well, treat them normally as you would talk to them normally, but then almost go off them. Mm. Actually, how are those people responding? And if it's not your job to push them, so if they are a person, you know, uh, who wants to use a lot of adaptions or ad- adaptations, wants to really kind of or needs to really use these things um, and doesn't want to challenge themselves, then that's that's how you respond to them. And that's how you treat them. Mm. Not saying that's going to be the same as the next guy or girl you talk to, because they might be completely different. They might be more like me. They might want to do uh, 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 cop in it to say there's no, it's no right or wrong. Mm. It's just an individual yeah you know, it 's the same as you talk to any individual mm. you know if you 've got someone coming through your doors whether you 're a psychologist a counselor a business coach you don 't treat them all the same mm. you you question them, you talk to them, and you respond to what they give back to you and I think with ableism and and, and talking and behaving around disabled people, it has to be the same it 's got to be okay, here's, I know here's where I start, but now I need to respond to whatever this person is given back to me. Mm. Um, we One job we came back off once and we flew into, I want to say Gatwick, but it might have been Heathrow, and they'd lost one of the guy's wheelchairs and he literally had no legs. He was at the top of his legs, nothing. And you could see the, 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 mm. the stewardesses or the, the, air, the ground crew just dying inside because they'd lost his wheelchair. And you know what Heathrow and Gatwick are like, whichever one it was, it's miles to mm. get yourself all the way over. And they were just, and he was like, look, chill, I'll get there. And he pulled on a pair of gloves and just used his hands and bummed his way all the way through. Um, So bear in mind, next time you're ever moaning about walking those legs. (laughs) Mm. And and, and And he got to the point where he was being quite deliberate with it because he wanted them to just relax. It's all right. You don't need yeah. to, you can respond to me like this. You don't need to panic and try and wrap loads of cotton wool around me. Yeah. But that wouldn't be the same if he was, I don't know, 80, 90 years old and had no course, legs yeah. or, or even just of that age. Cause there's different, but you respond to how that person reacts. Hmm.
0: Cause I always do feel like it's, it's in so many things, it always comes back down to empathy and it's understanding both sides of it. Right. So like I can look at you and I can go, okay, there are, there are differences between us, and part of me is like. Even, even before when we were <laughs> going out to the car park, I was like, Do I take the stairs or do I take the lift? I don't know, because I know you, and you'd just be like, well, I'll fucking climb up the, Always stairs. the stairs. Yeah. yeah I was just like, but there's the thing, like in my head, like now that I was actually thinking about it, and it, it changes it. But I think it's it's about understanding how how both parties feel. When it comes back to that curiosity you're talking about with children, mm. there there's no lesson in school for going, like, this is how you talk to people with different disabilities, but also that doesn't cover everyone. Because <laughs> you can have five people with the exact same physical disability, but they'll respond differently to it. One of them doesn't even like the term disability. So don't mention that. You know? <laughs> so but I think it's like you're saying it's it's actually having a conversation with people and going, we're just two people. We need to find or we want to find a common ground. Mm-hmm. No one's doing this antagonistically. You know, people can, you know, put their foot in their mouth, so to speak, yep. some more literally than others. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that it's, you know, you're being outwardly horrible to people. And I feel like maybe, well, I'm curious what you think of this, but I feel that there are a lot of people, more so now than ever, who have no physical disability, but want to talk on your behalf mm. and be like, this is how you should talk to Stuart Penn because he's like this and you don't understand and this. And actually, you'll be the first person to be like, not only do you not care how someone talks to you, but you'll talk to them about how they talk to you and how you talk to them. You know, it's, it's a back and forth.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I always come back to it, the individual, and if they are have the capacity to be able to have the conversation, have the conversation with that individual. Uh, again, it's a cliche, isn't it? But when you've got someone being pushed in a wheelchair, do you talk to the person pushing them, or do you talk to the person in the wheelchair? Mm. And my answer would be, depends what you're asking. Mm-hmm. If you want to know what the person pushing the wheelchair had for breakfast, then you're not going to ask the person in the wheelchair. So it's, <laughs> it's you're back to don't 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 focus on the wheelchair. Focus on what you actually want to get out of it, and who's the individual you need to talk to about it. Mm. So, what? So, what did you do after
0: um, secondary school? Then, yeah. so you finished being in college or yeah, work or
1: um, briefly to college uh, for about a year, uh, where well, I did I was doing computers uh, as it was in those days. It wasn't really into it, so I ended up going and working in the bank, um, mm. international bank, and in Birmingham um, it was an office job. Uh, I think it's one of the few times in my life where it's been a case of, oh, that, that'll that suit him because he's disabled. And I think subconsciously that was the same for me. i will be yeah. like, oh, yeah, it's an office job. That'll suit me because I'm disabled. Um, I, was, I was only about 17, I think. I was quite young going to the workforce. Um, and that was great. You know, again, treated normally, did everything as normal, went out drinking with him on the weekends, you know, would socialise as normal. But it wasn't satisfying me, yeah. so... I was still doing Taekwondo at this point, um, all the way through. Uh, I still do it now. I do it, I've never stopped. Um, and about 21, so I must have been about 18, 19, I started what was basically an informal apprenticeship in that I'd go and I'd teach Taekwondo hmm. uh, for my instructor. So I'd teach the kids class for him on one night a week, and then I'd cover some of the, the adult lessons for him till I was 21. Then I could become a, a Taekwondo instructor in my own right. Uh, and go and and pass the course and pass the physical and everything to to be able to do that and teach it so I then set up my own business uh, running martial arts schools or Taekwondo schools Um, and at the time it was like a franchise so I'd have to drive two hours away to be able to set up a club Um, so I did that so I would work all day at the bank and then I'd jump in the car four days a week and drive two hours to teach for an hour and drive two hours back it seems crazy now but that's Mm. what I did and I did that for many years and I did that in conjunction with doing the, the military and the movie stuff as well, to the point where I was able to give up the day job, and it was a case of like, if I give up the day job, I can actually do more film stuff, more military stuff. I can do, I can teach more Taekwondo hours. Uh, so I ended up running my own business for quite for many years. Um, and I think running your own business is interesting. I think everyone should be self-employed at least once in their life, mm. just because you'll never understand the work ethic as well as you do when (laughs) when if you don't do it you ain't gonna get any money paid for you of course and it's the classic again the classic of if you take my legs off and then set the fire alarm off I'll find a way of getting out of here Mm. likewise if my only way of getting money is getting to work and working I'll get to work and work no matter mm. what. I mean, I remember teaching sometimes where, where the stomach would be damaged and swollen up, so I be, I'd be, I didn't have crutches, so I would literally walk into my knees and I'd teach on my knees, or I'd teach sitting down, or I'd force the prosthetic leg on so that I could at least stand there and teach, mm. um, not demonstrating anything. <laughs> so I it' working for yourself really for me anyway, has instilled that massive work ethic um, that, you know, you want to do something, you get in there and do it. Mm. Um, and creatively it means that I love teaching martial arts just because of the people you met and um, being able to see people overcome their own challenges, no matter what physicality they were or, you know, and I taught able-bodied because quite often people assume I just taught disabled people. I didn't, I don't think I, I think I very rarely taught disabled people. It was, it was all able-bodied people um, for hobbies, you know, kids and adults. Um, to, just teaching them, and it's great to see people overcome difficulties just through the martial arts world, and be able to get them themselves to whatever belt or competition they wanted to get to.
0: Mm. Um, fuck, I had something that's just completely <laughs> gone from my mind. Um Yeah, so I, I feel like it's an apt point that we're having this conversation because GCSE results mm. have kind of just been and gone, and there's a lot of um, a lot of the people that we deal with at work are teenagers who have no understanding of where the direction Mm -hmm. in life is. When you left school then, did you have a sense of like, I want to do something specific with my life or, you know, what was your kind of...
1: I hadn't a clue. Uh, I, I, I've i had uh, well, when I do these talks I always say oh, I've had a great exciting life but I've never had any idea of what I wanted to do mm. I, I've bounced I've literally just gone with the flow which is probably the wrong thing to be saying to, to teenagers <laughs> but I, I didn't I mean i I come out of school went into college didn't really enjoy it floated into the banking work found my passion then in in, in many ways my passion is talking to people in, in large audiences I, I love that sort of stand in front of an audience for anything um, and I'll happily have a conversation about it it um and I think that's actually where my passion is and that's where my careers end up going but I didn't know that until probably about two seconds ago when I told you it um <laughs> but I, I, I've never had a plan I've never um had a, a career in mind uh, which was you know would think it's quite bizarre for someone who likes overcoming challenges that uh, uh, you know setting yourself goals and overcoming things I don't even think I was much of a goal setter until Really, until I came to Jersey and at some point in Jersey, I ended up going on a course to become a goals motivational instructor, which I, I don't do anymore. But I used to just go and it was very prescriptive, but it was all about how to set goals, how to achieve them. And there was a lot I took away from that and lot I recognized in myself that I did naturally. Mm. Um, so I'd never naturally sat down and gone, oh, I'm going to do that next or I'm going to have that career next or actually that's the job I want. But in my mind, naturally, I did those sort of things where I naturally set goals without thinking about them as goals and then achieve them and moved on without any big fanfare. Just, oh, isn't it great? I did it. Mm. Um, and, and again, you're back to that resilience yeah. idea of growing up. I had all these little challenges, so I wouldn't necessarily set them, but I would see it and go, well, I want to do that. So now I'm going to overcome it so i think for young people nowadays well not even nowadays i think even back when i was young we we do set too much weight on what do you want to do now Mm. what's the job you're going to do because this will be your career Mm. i've had all sorts of you know jobs and some of the the, there was one point when i um i'd left the bank i'd been teaching martial arts for a long time um but then i my basically my expenditure went up i was moved down south and i was living in Hartford. so i needed more money um in fact, no, it was after I got married and we got a mortgage. That's right. So anyway, I needed more money. Um, and the film work was a bit dry at the time. The casualty simulation work, we'd only just started. Um, so I thought, oh, i better get a job. And there was no airs and graces about it. There was no, oh, I haven't got a minute. I'm a martial arts instructor, stuntman person. Mm. And, and I'm trying to launch this This casualty. It was okay, so I'll just get a job. So I went and just got a job in the local alliance in Leicester branch. Um, just sitting on their counter and serving old people as they came into the bank because no one else ever comes into a bank. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and some uh, some of the things I learned in that job that I did for probably about a year, I ended up doing it one day a week in the end because the, the, the casual simulation stuff launched very successfully, mm. but they didn't want to let me go. So I thought, I'll keep doing it one day a week with you. And some of the things I learned in that, that boring branch banking job mm. that even at the time, I mean, I must have been late 20s, to, you wouldn't. Everyone else doing that job was a, was a young person leaving school, so you would think, "Oh, why would you do that?" That's a bit mm. slumming it, but that was great. I learned so much just from that. So, in many ways, I think the message is, yeah. yeah. If you can, yeah, you should set goals. You should have an idea. If you've got a passion, go with your passion. Um, identify what it is because you'll enjoy your work more if you can. But also don't don't feel anything's beneath you or don't feel that it isn't worth trying something. Mm. Um, I'm sure if I'd have been growing up in Jersey as a kid, I'd, have, I'd have, have worked in hospitality and all sorts. And maybe I'd have learned quicker that my passion is standing in front of audiences and talking because I might have been more customer service focused and, <laughs> and learned those skills then. So... I think it's great to have a plan and great to set goals, but sometimes you just got to go with the flow a bit and pick up whatever you can in whatever you do. Um, A lot of the the skills that I used to use in coaching and mentoring came from that Alliance on Leicester job um, because you were taught how to sell loans. It was when before the financial crash, so it was how to get people to borrow as much money as they wanted. Mm. And they did some great training about how to get people to visualise subtly what they were going to spend that money on hmm. which is brilliant that's a great coaching tool if you use it for the good <laughs> if you use it for evil and say yeah, it, of you, know, you make them imagine the uh, the lovely BMW car they're going <laughs> to buy with a <alone>, loan <laughs> uh, yeah. and then that way when you slap them with oh by the way it's 14% APR and it's going to cost you x amount over 5 years they, they've got that picture and they don't want to give up on it yeah, uh, so yeah I, I just think you try anything get skills from where you can and then find your passion mm. and use those skills to get you better at what you want to do
0: so throughout this point, so we're talking your early, your late twenties now. Mm-hmm. You've, well, first of all, have was there ever a point where you re- remember being shy?
1: Yeah, that's that's the irony of what I just said about. I, I love being in front of an audience. I, I was painfully shy. Um, and before I started my apprenticeship in inverted qu- commas for Taekwondo, mm. you wouldn't have got me in front of a, a, a stage talking to people. I mean, even just small groups, I, I was cripplingly shy.
0: And that's uh, seventeen,
1: eighteen. Yeah, this was like about yeah. seventeen, eighteen. And I, you know, well, I, I was outgoing. There's no doubt I was outgoing. But put me in a formal situation or with a bigger group, and I was shy as anything. I didn't want to talk. If I did, again, maybe it was the underlying everyone staring at me thing still mm. there. Um, and it was. It was only through doing martial arts that, uh, or through teaching. In taekwondo that i started to get that confidence up um a lot of it, I think it was because i was short-sighted and didn't know it so i'd be studying in front of an audience i couldn't see the audience it was all blurred i didn't know who was in front of me so i'd be sitting in front of a class and would be able to see them but also it was the prescriptive nature of you were teaching set patterns set routines so i and i you know that was what i lived for even eight i knew what i was talking about and having the confidence to just stand there and do it to the point where eventually you know, I now have the, the confidence to do, stand in front of an audience. It's my favourite thing, is to stand in front of all this and talk to people. Hmm. Um- once when we were doing the military stuff myself and there uh, there's a guy I know Darren Swifty Swift uh, you've got to Google him and if I can arrange you need to have a chat with him at some point he's an amazing guy right. his life makes mine look boring <laughs> um, he's Excellent. done all sorts of things and he, he was blown up in Northern Ireland so he's missing two two legs at the knees we me and him got booked to go and do this this casual simulation job and this was when we were it's very successful it was before we, the business got sold on and we moved away from it it was a very successful business we were highly renowned as being experts in this area and we were booked to go and do this job and we didn't think anything of it we rocked up and it was a hotel but we assumed that the hotel was we were just staying there and then we were going to get taken in the field somewhere and we turned up and they said oh no it's a, it's a conference you're here to talk we're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, fine. I mean, he can talk the hind legs off a donkey, mm-hmm. um, and oodles of charisma. So, I just rode on his coattails a bit. But as we were there, we were like, yeah, we'll just talk about the basic stuff because that's all we know is we've we're, we we we've done the courses with the military to how to treat people at point of impact. So, we knew what we were talking about, we did it day in, day out. And then uh, they said, Oh, yeah, no, it's a conference for uh, I can't remember what they were calling that, but basically very high up doctors who were the ones who were called to emergency situations because they knew best. And me and Swifty were stood there thinking, how the are we going to talk to them about that? Mm. And we both looked at each other. And again, we, we both love standing in front of a crowd and talking, but we we're suddenly thinking, wow, we got like 200 people at this hotel conference who are highly qualified doctors. So we're trying to work it out. And we're sitting there and we're looking at the table with the tablecloth on where we dumped our kit because we bought all our prosthetics, we bought everything thinking we were going to be out on the field. And we looked at this table, I, I, I don't know which one, but I'll give Swifty Swift the credit. He said, why don't we, uh, why don't I under that table? Why don't I hide under that table, fully made up? That's a good idea. We'll get the formula to the Jova plan. So, 200 people come in, all highly qualified doctors. They're there with other taught speakers as well. And then they've come into our bit. They've all sat down, and I'm just stood at the front. And, uh, And and I think I gave some sort of intro about amputees in action and what we did at the time. And then I just cracked my metal arm down on the table and made a massive bang. And as that bang went off, they all jumped because they're not expecting it. Swifty rolls out from underneath the table, fully made up, blood squirting everywhere, screaming and shouting for help. And then we stopped and just let it go completely silent. And we went... That, ladies and gentlemen, is why, no matter how qualified you are, the factual froze means we need to go for the basics. <laughs> and we just sat there <laughs> and talked to them about the basics of first had and how to treat a uh, how to treat a casualty. And they loved nice. it. <laughs> That's amazing.
0: That doesn't sound at all like I mean I I've been in several um training rooms with you where you have been, and it's the thing, so I, like for for clarity, for people don't you don't know you what is your official role?
1: Uh, I'm the operations manager at Skills Jersey, yeah. um, uh, and of course it's all changing because the government restructuring everything. But basically, the, at the time uh, recording, my job was to be operationally in charge of all the groups that sit in Skills Jersey. So that um, I oversee, if you like, the staff CPD, the staff training, any operational side of it, the KPIs, everything like that. So the team leaders manage the staff and run their teams, but then I'm the one that oversees them, mm. and checks that everything's working, basically. And you've been
0: there for a long time now since it started (laughs) but basically i i joined two years ago um and i know you through jujitsu. yes and it was always just like oh stew's great that'll be fun and it wasn't until the first time i was in like a training conference and we were talking about safeguarding that i realized (laughs) like oh this is who Stuart <laughs> and it was just i think i remember walking down to it and someone was like i've already done this but i'm coming down again because Stu and um phil Leclaire, phil eclair they make it so enjoyable <laughs> and i was like how can that possibly be, be, be possible and yeah but it just it shows that you've been able to inject that kind of charisma into into whatever it is you're doing right because how many places around the world have safeguarding training that is just
1: so boring <laughs> yeah it is I mean, i'm a i'm a big fan and it probably comes from the military stuff and the taekwondo stuff and being self-employed i'm a big fan if you if you're teaching someone anything make it enjoyable mm. don't i, I learned a great lesson actually for that goals um training i mentioned earlier that the, the guy who taught me that always my you know had to sign me off on that he was the, he was the one only person that ever pointed out to me that i sometimes i use too much humor if I'm, and he says, you've always got to find the fine line. If it's more of a serious subject, pull it back a bit. So I'm always a great fan of actually you've got to make people enjoy themselves. If they're at a training or if they're at a conference or if they're listening to something, they've got to enjoy themselves. But you also need to know how to hit the beats of sincerity and how to mm. use simple things like I'm doing now of lowering the tone of my voice or sitting down. If I'm delivering safeguarding training or something that's got a, a more... Serious edge. There'll be a point where I'll sit down and slow it down and talk mm-hmm. to people, and then bring the fun back in, mm-hmm. because you don't want to end it on a low. I think everyone's got to enjoy themselves to to remember stuff. I think you remember it better. Than, oh, certainly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's like it's, it's funny. I was talking about if um, you've seen the film Click with Adam no, Sandler. No. It's a ridiculous film. I, by no means is it a good film. It's the quintessential Adam Sandler film. But there is a moment in it that is so unbelievably sad, but it kind of only is that sad because the rest of the film has been that ridiculous that you don't expect it and it just shows that you kind of need those ebbs and flows and it stays with you because otherwise it's just a film you go oh yeah i saw that film it was yeah whatever yeah but because it's got like it has a message that it wants to give and it does it very well and it's got the stupid stuff around it but the point it was trying to make it still does because yeah. it knows when to change the tone um i feel like a big thing that we've kind of been talking about is adaptability mm-hmm. and you know put you in a situation you'll figure figure out a way to get through it or, or whatever but have there been times where it's just been like things felt insurmountable like what does that look like for you?
1: Yeah, there has been and and there will still be again. You know, we all have that. When I do the the kind of inspirational speeches or chat to people, you know, it's easy to think that I go out there and skip through life and overcome everything. But there's not, you know, I'm the same as everyone. We all have emotions. We all have points where actually I can't do this or this is too difficult for me to do. Uh, You know, I do often catch myself and sometimes others catch me as well um one example is i was uh, i was about 40 so it was, it was not only a few years ago and we were at um hampton for the cider festival mm. so i'm there having a few a few drinks obviously and um there's monkey bars they'd put a new park in there and there, and there's monkey bars there and my boys come over to me said dad come and play on the monkey bars with us and without missing a beat i went oh, i can't do monkey bars boys because I'd I'd never done them. It was something I couldn't do. And Mm. and it was just incredible. And of course, my cheeky children turned around and went, oh, I thought you could do anything. I thought you'd find a way to. So of course, I turned to the wife and said, hold me beer. And uh, and I I went and did it. and, And I found a way of doing it. But actually, there are times. You know, that's a, a kind of a humorous example. But there are times where it's just, like, oh, man, I can't do this. This is this is really difficult. How am I going to do this? Um, the Island Walk was probably mm-hmm. the last time I had a real kind of hit of it. Um, so for the Island Walk, um, I stupidly did it only a couple of weeks before or after the twelve-hour Grapplathon, which was another one. Um, it, it was because of bad weather. We ended up the, the Grapplathon got bumped. That's it. The Grapplathon was first and kept getting bumped because of the bad weather. So I ended up doing it two weeks before I did the Island mm-hmm. Walk. So I'd been training for the Island Walk, but not expecting that lack of recovery Um, and because I walk half the speed of everyone else the island walk was going to take me two days Mm -hmm. um, or 24 hours so I split it over two days 12 hours Uh, and the first day you know I'm going out and I'd done long walks and I knew that you know I was going to get sores I was going to open wounds I knew it was going to be difficult and I did the first day I did the the north coast um, which is like a thin cliff path if people haven't done it so the reason I chose to do that on the first day was on the second day I was doing it with everyone else and I thought man I'm going to be so unpopular if I am walking half the speed of everyone mm. else on the thin cliff path where they can't get past me so i thought right i'll start at st Catherine's and i'll walk all the way at the top of jersey and get to the other side um three hours in i twisted my only knee uh, so I couldn't bend my knee; it was swelled up to the size of an elephant. Uh, I, I was rubbed sore. I mean, it was it was harder than I ever imagined. Mm. And I got to Gronay, which was near where I wanted to finish, and fell down the steps because I couldn't bend my knee anymore. I landed at the feet of an Australian tourist who looked very confused. Why this one arm, one legged one was man was practically crying. Um, I stumbled a bit further, And in I end, I couldn't make it to where I wanted to finish. I was just done. Um, you know and if ever someone says i can't I mean it it was me then mm. and i found that the support team that were picking me up they picked me up and they dropped me home and i got home my wife had gone out with the kids and i've got no house key so i'm sat there on the lawn of my house i just sobbing mm. i just i cannot do this i've just done 12 hours i had done 21 miles of 48 i was like i cannot get up if you're going to start the island walk the next day it's a 2 o'clock, 2 a.m start and mm. this was six o'clock on the night I'm thinking, man, it's six o'clock in the night. By 2 a.m., not only have I got to be dressed, I've got to be down at the harbour to do another 12 hours and another, what is it, 21, 48, 27 miles. I just, there's no way I can do this. Uh, but I did, I got up the next day and I went there and I was in agony and I'm st- even just at the start, I was thinking, I'm not sure I can do this. And everyone started and people just went and I'm walking, I had to have my legs wide apart because I was bleeding at the tops of my legs where my, my metal leg had rubbed the tops of my legs. My knee was the size of this big purple elephant and I'm walking with a walker stick staggering along. And um, a guy uh, from Jiu-Jitsu, I won't name him because it will embarrass him. He turns up and that, I don't know if he'd just finished work or what, but he was he was in work clothes. He said, "What are you doing?" And I was like, oh, "I'm doing the the island walk." He said, oh, "I'll stay with you for a bit," and he stayed with me the whole day. Mm. Man, it, it talked my ears off, and I. Could probably have killed him a couple of times if <laughs> I'd have been physically able to, but I was exhausted because he just didn't stop talking. But it was deliberate, he was keeping me going. Mm. And I swear, I wouldn't have done it. You know, if people say, Have you ever been anything you wanted to give up on? It was that. I would not have done it if it mm. hadn't been for him. Uh, the caveat is, I did cut one corner off because th- there was a there's a rocky stair bit and I couldn't, there's no way I could bear my, ne- my knee to get mm. up there. Uh, I'd have done myself an even worse serious industry. So I cut that bit off and, and just ended up doing the end. So I did 36 out of 48. But man, I found the way of doing it and I suppose you could say yeah I didn't because I cut that bit off I gave up on that bit but for me the satisfaction was I still made it to the finish line mm. I cut that bit off I won't lie about it I'll tell everyone I cut that bit off but I could still do it but it, that was just it felt insurmountable it felt impossible to do especially that that night before the second day not so much because this guy was chatting my ears off and he kept me going i didn't really have time to think about ah this is hurting too much i can't carry on but that night i just it it just looked like an impossible mountain to climb Mm. and i think subconsciously it was a case of back to how do you eat an elephant it's just bite-sized that's bite-sized little spoonfuls Mm. so it was get up get there if i get there i I'll there if i start when they everyone else starts i'll start and then Small little chunks.
0: So in that period between six PM and two AM, yeah, what what process did you get? Like, because surely there was part of you who was just like, I'm just not going to do it, and no, no one will fault me if I say I'm out yeah. because they'll go, yeah, that looks awful. <laughs> but we're like, was it a quick thing? We like, no, all right, I've got to figure out a way that I'm going to do it, or eleventh hour. It- I'm going to do it. It was
1: hour by hour. It, I, you know, I must have changed my mind, probably even minute by minute. I'm not doing it. I'm doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm getting a, an ice bath. Okay, I'm doing it get out i'm not doing it mm. try and get to sleep and then you can't sleep because obviously you got all the adrenaline buzzing and the panic about too much. so it was minute by minute never mind I, I, i'm not going to do it i am going to do it i'm not going to do it i am going to do it um, and, and then it was my wife was doing it as well so she had to get up at that time in the morning she oh, okay. was going to start it so okay i'm going to do it i will go and it was little small chunks of well if i get there and i get to the start and then i'll start it and do as much as i can mm. um yeah i i'm, I'm I'm a big fan of if you're going to do something, just do it to your ability. Hmm. Again, back to the whole goal setting thing. If you're going to set yourself goals, brilliant. But if, if after a, a few weeks, days, hours, you decide that goal is not something you want to do anymore, then don't do it. You know, don't hold yourself to it unless it is, unless there is something you want to do. Hmm. Uh, and for me, it was that: is okay, I'm going to do this bit. And just small, little, I'm going to get to the port. Okay, well I, well, I can get to St. Catherine's. I'll get to St. Catherine's and then I'll get picked up and dropped there. Okay, well, I'll get to that bit and then I'll do this bit and the last uh, however long it's a few miles along the front there along Victoria Avenue is it um, along there they have a mile counter mm. and, and I took just just picture it every mile just to just to to help me establish that okay now I've only got this mile left now I've only got that mile left <laughs> on
0: <laughs> on my last podcast I talked about how i walked the Itex drunk and gave up <laughs> and I feel like such a bastard now um with with your wife was there a point where she was like like what was her kind of feeling on it was she like don't do it look it's not worth it like when yeah. she went to start the wish like, I, I guess i'll see you later <laughs> <laughs> no
1: she my wife generally learned that actually just leave me to it <laughs> she, yeah. she knows if i'm gonna do something um she was actually more worried about the grappler fine she really didn't want me to do that really? um just yeah that's where
0: well let, it, let's just for people who don't uh, okay. know
1: so so what I, I it was a bizarre yeah I don't know what over what came over me I decided I hadn't done anything really challenging which I suppose I had I'd, I'd given up my entire career in martial arts movies and casualty simulation and moved to Jersey hmm. uh, where I didn't have a job and we had no roots, other than my wife obviously is from here. Um, just so that I could be with my kids more. That was that was the driving force. Um, you know, the military job was dangerous, I was away a lot, and it gave but then once I got to Jersey, it was a case of just re-establishing, find a job, find the career. So I say I didn't done anything challenging, but actually in hindsight, that I still can't believe we did that. Mm. Um, but I I must have just hit a point where I thought I needed a challenge. So I'd take i started Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, um, started doing that, which is brilliant. You know, I love that. Don't get me started on that. We'll be talking for about another five hours. Um, especially about what it means to people we've limbs and they can take them off and have an advantage i think that's a brilliant side to the art which is why it's so popular with people with amputations mm-hmm. um so i started that and it was i'd only been training 18 months uh, if that i think actually it might have been just over a year and i said to, to rob the coach i said you know i, 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 I do not know where I even got the idea from i've I'd never even heard the word grappler from. i said look i want to do a challenge and i want to i think i can roll with people so wrestle for the people that don't know what it is i roll with people for 12 hours non-stop which seems ludicrous now. I think mm. back and think, wow, wow. And, and I remember a couple of the guys who were more senior and been doing it a lot younger going, what the hell are you doing? What You're not going to be able to do that. Why would you do that? Mm. Um, and then it became about, you know, raising the the profile of people with, with disabilities and so we wanted to do it somewhere public and it was, okay, so let's do it in the middle of town by the West Centre cows that are there. So literally outside on this ground, um, one of the guys, owns the a cafe near there. So that was our base camp of being able to use them for food and toilets and things. Um, and the idea was I'd do 12 hours. I think I started at 6 or 7 a.m. Mm. and then was going through to 6 or 7 at the nine and a different person every half an hour so the people rolling would be fresh it would only be me that stayed on there for 12 hours Um, at the time i only really did no gi so i didn't do gi stuff um i'm just dressed in lycra and shorts um and just did 12 hours solid different person rolling with me every half an hour um and again playing up to how much i love being in the audience and the crowd we ended up with loads of people watching and, and i engaged with the audience while i was doing the doing the wrestling um to make it fun for people to watch so it wasn't awkward that you mm. watching this poor disabled guy get smashed <laughs> to bits But I mean I figured back I knew nothing about jujitsu. I don't know how I even managed to tap anyone out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean people must have just been being nice to me. Um, but yeah you know, it, it wasn't awkward for people because I was engaging and chatting and making fun of it. Because you know, I, I love the sport anyway and um it's not like you generally can do it without getting hurt. Um, so it was it was great. The the only injury I had from that so my wife was worried. That's where we were going, wasn't it? Mm. My wife was worried because she didn't know that so much about Jiu-Jitsu. So all she knew was I was going to fight blokes for, for 12 hours constantly. Um, and she was really worried about that. And, you know, accidents can happen. It could easily have ended in all sorts, especially when you're tired and exhausted. Mm. But actually, the only accidental injury I got was I broke my little finger in the last three hours. Uh, no one's fault. A guy threw me off him. I slid off him and landed on my little finger and snapped it. And um, We got, um, not St. John's, but we got support there. I should really name check them. Normandy Rescue. So we got paramedics there. They come over and and they looked at it and just basically said, I said, just tape it up. So they just taped it up for me and we we carried on. Um, I think I only had a break of about five minutes max in the whole thing. Just stopping to quickly. I changed clothes once and threw some energy bars down me and drank and then carried on. Um, And it was amazing. But man, the the, the two things were totally different challenges. The jujitsu one, never doubted I wouldn't do it. Twelve. All I had to do was just stay on that mat and keep going, even if it meant I just lay there and just kept tapping out. I, I had no doubt that I wouldn't do that. Whereas the, the walk, I always doubted that I'd be able to make it because mm. walk is not my yeah, skill. <laughs> um, but where's the jujitsu? I never doubted I wouldn't make it. Um, it was just a matter of how much punishment would I take before I got to the end, uh, and the answer was a lot. Mm. Um, I remember the, the next day from that, I couldn't move out of bed. Um, I was because it's a you, know, you use every muscle in your body, but also it's it's out of your control. It's the banging and thumping of everyone else, and the pressure of every, the people that you're rolling with. Even you know they were being really good to me, I'm sure. Um, but that constant it was totally different feeling um, to how injured I was compared to the walk, which was probably worse, but was in my control. So there were different injuries and different challenges. Uh, I don't want to do either of them again. <laughs>
0: What what was that feeling like then when you finished the the uh, round the island?
1: The round the Randy island was was amazing. I mean, I, I, well, like part of me did feel a bit of a fraud because I'd cut off that that twelve miles of it, um, but actually still getting to the end of it, it was just amazing because it was. I didn't think I'd be able to do all mm. of it. So you know, like I say, I'll take that as a win, and I'll always be honest that I didn't couldn't do all of it, and it was amazing just to get to the end of it and stop and not move again for a while uh, and I had some acupuncture and therapy on my knee at the, the, the end and physiotherapy and they, that's where they said it's twisted and <laughs> the guy said oh when did you do this in the last hour or so I went yesterday yeah. within the first three hours <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was great I mean, the, the grapple fun as well I remember finished the grapple fun and the camaraderie around the end of that obviously because I awarded my blue belt at the end of it as well and the fact that you know, with Heinz I never thanked the guys enough because the, the rest of the club had been there all day uh, you know and, and we're all coming on and off and there was a few guys who had been there and been on several times with mm. me so you know i never thanked them enough for, for the fact that they stayed there and did it you know they sat there in the freezing cold all day coming mm. on and off the mat wrestling with me just so that i could say oh look at this uh, and we raised it you yeah know, we did raise a lot of money for the the local limb service here which meant they were able to do out the um the prosthetics room so they could have a proper room with all the proper tools in it as well mm. as opposed to just being an add-on at the physiotherapy at the hospital so for both of them it's a huge amount of satisfaction completing them uh, and I do think that they're still the hardest challenges I've ever done in my life
0: I remember I remember going down to the grapple and um and I think my girlfriend at the time didn't really know what jiu-jitsu was and then when I got there and like got changed into my stuff and she was like wait what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> I was just like this is Stuart and he's gonna <laughs> shove his stump into my <laughs> chin for a, for a while <laughs> don't worry it's jiu-jitsu <laughs> <laughs> and that was uh, a novel experience. I think it would be a travesty if we didn't start talking about Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah. Though. So uh, so was Jiu-Jitsu ever on your radar before Jersey or was it when you got to Jersey? Yeah. That, why, why not just go, well, I'm going to go do Taekwondo then?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it was a bizarre thing because the Taekwondo that I did back in the 80s and 90s, you, you never cross-trained. I mean, nowadays, it's everyone cross trains, but now you didn't cross train. So God, it was, it was political. It was, you, you, you know, God, you, you just never saw anyone. You had to quit to go and do something else so Taekwondo was always my life you know and like I say I still do it now I still go over and, and, and just officiate gradings and things um, I generally just train myself now in Taekwondo so again it was looking for a new challenge and I thought you know, new I didn't know many people here so I started off by going to um, I did the, the boxer size of boxing business which is brilliant I mean that, that, great setup they've got there I did that for, for a while I loved it and again, with hindsight now, I know I was missing the the combative not necessarily the competitive side of it, but actually the, the physicality of, mm. of fighting another person. Win or lose, you learn a lot about yourself when you when you do martial arts and you're sparring or rolling. So I was missing that. Uh, I dabbled in Aikido for a little bit, but likewise, there isn't that there isn't that sparring element to it. There isn't that kind of challenging against someone else to, to roll or spar with them. So I then stumbled across. I think it was actually Cav. I started a new job managing, which was trackers at the time. Uh, and one of the guys there did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And he just said, why don't you come along? um so i did and come along and, and i tell the story now and again it's one of those classics of the, the stories now embellished and probably didn't happen like this at all but um i turned up and i took all my prosthetics that i normally wear for sports uh, and, and robbed the coach there the professor there told me i said well you don't need any of them take them off uh so i did which was bizarre because i'd never done a sport without prosthetic limbs on ever even judo when i used to do judo as a kid i wore my leg to do it um so it was really bizarre to, to move and you know I, I walk around the house sometimes with no limbs on the walk on my knees um and when i go on condor i've terrified many a family and child by I, I, it's so rocky i won't walk around with my metal legs on i walk around on my knees um but to do a sport completely no prosthetics was it was really freeing and, um and and quite bizarre yeah i'm mean, talking i was it must have been my uh, late 30s early forties or something by that point so it's not like I was a kid it was I'd had my whole life but to suddenly be doing this sport and then there's the cliche as the story goes in that Rob pointed out that it's about locking joints up so the less joints you've got you're at an advantage. Mm. Uh, And, you know, it sounds great to say that now, but it's a case of actually people with limbs missing are at an advantage when it comes to jujitsu. Also, you can move different. You can get yourself out of situations that people with two arms and two legs can't. Mm -hmm. Um, And and you can make yourself a lot faster um, than a lot of the guys who are able bodied. Uh, So, you know, it it was fascinating even just to start it. Uh, and like I say, I then you know, fell in love with it. Love all the side of it, the, the camaraderie that we have at the club here as well. Again, no airs and graces. Do, it doesn't matter uh, that, that I'm turning up there and walking on my knees with, with limbs missing. Everyone treats you the same. No one gives me any quarter, uh, as you know, because you don't. Uh, you know, everyone <laughs> smashes me and taps me out the same way that they would if I was able-bodied. Um, and I think that that is the beauty of the sport um, is that you can. And it's so. Technical as well. I think that what surprised me the most was after the the from basically what happened is that around the world, there was a movement to do um, an, a, a power division, basically, at the World Championships and the Grand Slams. And someone in in the United Arab Emirates, where it's it's their national sport, had seen videos of me at the grappler in Jersey um, because people were filming it, obviously, and posting it and, and sharing it. Look at this strange little guy fighting people. Um, and they saw that. So they contacted us. Um, myself and the, the club here and Rob, and said, would you be willing to come out to Abu Dhabi and, and compete in the world championships out there for this power division? Um, so I was going, yeah, brilliant, I'll do that. All expenses paid. They're going to play for my flights. I said, of course I'm going to do that. And it was the real first one um, that had ever been done. And I had to switch from no gi to gi then. So basically, if people don't follow, that's going from wearing lycra and slippy to whole wearing pajamas that people can hold. Mm. Where and and, and it, I realised then how completely different they were and how technical jujitsu is in the gi. Mm. It really is. And the, the no gi stuff is It's a game of chess, you know. But the the gi stuff, there's so much to it. So technical. So much to learn. And you really do have to think in four D uh whereas taekwondo you stood up you're you're thinking in 3d you're punching you're kicking you're moving but you know when you're on the ground flat you can be you don't even know where where up is sometimes Mm -hmm. it's like you're dropped into the ocean and you can see why they make all the the what's it uh, cross reference it to being sharks in the Mm -hmm. ocean because you do feel like you're drowning uh certainly i remember the first couple of lessons i did um so yeah i fell in love with the geese stuff immediately then realized how much technical stuff there was to learn from it um which was interesting because I had to think about three months to get good at the Gi to go to this first world championships and fight other people who had been doing the Gi since their start, um, let alone even more years than me.
0: I I remember the first few months that you started training and we'd turn up and you'd be training with Rob beforehand and... Mm. Um, and he'd have this giant smile on his face like you were a human Rubik's Cube that he had to figure out. Just being like, wait a minute, I can't do this, this submission. Okay, well, wait, how do I do this? And before it was like, right, well, what submissions can I do? Right, I can do a DAS around your neck with your, the arm that's there. Yeah. But then it was like, well, actually, can I submit Stuart with his, um, you know, the, the limbs <laughs> that are missing, yeah, essentially? Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> it's it's funny because that's that one side for him where it'd like... It's his jujitsu's had to change to adapt to you but everything that you've said thus far on the podcast is like it's about your own adaptability and mm. I think I feel like I understand why you like jiu-jitsu more because every single person is a different puzzle for you to figure out some people are going to be heavier or how does how does my body work with that yeah you know you've got a speed advantage on on some people or most people actually <laughs> um, your ability to escape submissions and things like that but each time it's a different puzzle to solve and you can say it's 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 like that for most people when they yeah. do jujitsu. jitsu but for you it's to, especially competing in, in in power and being like well now you're yeah fighting against people who have limbs missing like what the hell
1: do I do it was when I went out to the the, we did a bit of rolling on the first day for the press Um, and that was the point where I realized what everyone's been on about when they roll with me and go what what, how do you do that (laughs) because suddenly I got these guys guys with arms and legs missing they were slipping out of things and retaining guard and and doing stuff that I just couldn't I was like no (laughs) this is what everyone feels like suddenly I couldn't tap out one arm because there was no arm there Um, Yeah, I think you're right it is it's that is that constantly adapting and changing and I, and I think I found with Jiu Jitsu similar in Taekwondo but certainly a, a wider world of it in Jiu Jitsu in that you are always having to adapt and change because you, like you, you, you train with someone different they're different but also yourself you do something and you think oh this is my stick now this is a, mm. and before you know it that don't work anymore because they've got used to that or they've learned something and actually there's this it's like someone opens a door each time and they say no this is the real library mm. and you walk into a reasonably sized room and you read everything and then you go to the next one and they say no this is the real library. There's a bigger room with more yeah. books. It, it is, you're right. I mean, that probably why it is why I'm so obsessed with it.
0: <laughs> There's a, a funny aspect where I think, like, you've obviously spent that entire time training for Abu Dhabi with, with our, our club, and everyone there is is t- two arms, Able two buddies, legs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when you're, when you're in Abu Dhabi and you're training against people, it's almost just like, well, wait a minute, this guy's got two arms, everyone <laughs> else has got one. That's not fair. And you go... <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, it's it's like it's not a scientific like everyone has to be equal in their in their disability, yeah. is it? It's just we recognise that you are you are fighting an uphill battle in that sense, yeah. but also not in others. It's weird because yeah. it is, isn't it? it? Like,
1: yeah, it is, and, and that's what I think. In many ways, they've done it right. It's one thing I didn't touch on when I did the disabled athletics. I competed in that, hated it it was all very much, oh, bless them. Oh, mm. give it, I got a medal and a t-shirt for turning up once to a European championship. And that was it. I was done. That was when I walked away from the athletics because I thought it was a pity party. Mm. Um, and you would only be matched against people very identical. And it was all very complex. Whereas the, the para-jiu-jitsu divisions are, 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 bless him, is very much the kind of Brazilian jiu-jitsu mindset. It was a case of age. Hey, we're all disabled. You just fight someone because there's not enough of us to put you into categories. So yeah. we just turn up. So any power division you turn up, you could be, you could be fighting someone with just a finger missing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I seem to remember i looking through the photos and I swear like one guy,
0: um, I hope I'm getting wrong, wrong, but he was blind, but completely like able-bodied otherwise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just being like, is that fair <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah, like yeah. again that's not the point though is it it's no. just about showing that how adaptable jujitsu is to regard whatever your body is
1: yeah and I it, it comes back to again why because I've said I'm not competitive yet I've competed in, in para Jiu Jitsu <laughs> and then gone and done able body Jiu Jitsu uh, competitions and I think it, it's back to the fact that for me it wasn't about winning any medals it's about making a show and Mm. showing people that this is possible so you know even when I go and do the the able-bodied competitions it's more about me saying hey look anyone can do this Um, and the same with the power ones we go along and it's more about look guys we can do this and and that we do it well Mm. it isn't it isn't a pity party you're not turning up there and getting clapped because you walk on and do something very basic you know you watch some of the power guys man the the fights are amazing Mm. Uh, and you see people do and that's that's why I do it it isn't for the medals or anything it's just to go and show people and say look you can do this this is this is what we're doing the and I think that's part of the para-jiu-jitsu theme with what they're trying to do is that you know like I said I think you know, it'd be great to get in the Paralympics it's great they had a para-division at every world grand slam last year so that they take place all over the world in different cities and they got a para-division at every one some of them were small I mean the UK sadly had the smallest division there was only mm. like five of us last year Something like that, anyway. Um, And they they had to get a lot of Brazilians and Americans to come over as well to to boost it out a little bit. But it is, it's about, you know, we turn up there, we're all friendly and chatty, we get on the mat, we smash each other, whoever wins the medal wins the medal, no one Mm. cares, and then you you back off. We're all there to to promote the sport, if you like, and to to show that anyone can do it.
0: In an ideal world, then, if there were enough people to put it into categories, is that better, or would you prefer that it is just... It's a, like a free-for-all, essentially. I just- think for
1: the purposes of making it getting it more of a mainstream I think it needs to have categories because Mm. I think people can understand that better Um, you know like you say you you watch it and you can watch I think the last one I went up against a guy who has just got his black belt just after that Um, and he's got just a deformed one arm so I'm not only fighting someone with more limbs which is fine I'm used to that but someone's a hell of a lot better than me Mm. got a lot more experience on me and it was great but we had a great we had a great match you know Mm. it it was good to watch so I think but for someone watching that that's difficult for them to understand, especially if they're mm. able-bodied, or even people with, with limbs, they might see that and think, oh, I don't ever want to get into this. So I think for the, for it to become mainstream, I think they do have to have categories. I think you have got to match as similar like-for-like like as you can get without going too far down the rabbit warren. Um, so that people, just so it's a spectator sport as well, and it's easy to understand, and you can see, okay, that's that that's that division, and that's that division. Mm. Um, I still think they should go by weight and belt first before they get into disability, if you like.
0: Yeah, that makes sense yeah um one thing i'm curious with with you is was there ever a shift in your perception of yourself and even the um the idea of essentially like without your right arm life becomes considerably more difficult right yeah when you knew you had a kid on the way how did
1: that feel (laughs) yeah, <laughs> it wasn't so much when they were on the way. It was when we got them. Okay. Um, I, I remember, and again, this is uh, might be an embellished story now, but I remember the first time I held my my baby son. Um, and it must have been only the first day we brought him home, basically. But the wife left the room and I need to change him or something and I realize I'm holding him and I had to get out the door to go and get a nappy or whatever it was. And we had round door handles. Mm -hmm. And why the hell we had round door handles in that house, I don't know. But suddenly I'm holding this precious tiny little thing in my my one arm and I can't get out the door to be able to change him. And it's Mm -hmm. like so all I did and I'm you know it was it was again it was it was the classic of do I panic, do I do this? And then there was that moment of oh my God, what am I gonna do? I can't do this and I'm gonna have to get someone else. To them thinking, no, oh, there's got to be a way. Uh, and what, so what I did was I lifted the baby up onto my shoulder, lifted my stump up and wedged him between my stump and my neck so that I'm holding the baby in place. So that it was mm. perfectly safe. And actually, I still use it now with my, with my three-year-old daughter because if I'm walking downstairs, that's safer than her sitting on my shoulders mm. because she can't fall and I've got a grasp of her. And then I was able to do it. So all it did really was open up a whole world of new challenges. Um, the, the funniest and most obvious one is if you ever put a baby in a cot, no, no. Okay, well, when you put a baby in a cup, <laughs> you need two hands to lower them into the cup because quite often it's high side so they mm. can't fall out. And, and I, I couldn't do it. You know, so I, I could, I could drop him, but that's not going to be good. He might bounce. Yeah, he you know? might bounce. Might be a right. big, plenty of cushions there. <laughs> And it was like, I mean, it was just the most ridiculous thing. And then for a while, I couldn't do bedtime because mm-hmm. of that. And, and it wasn't until I thought, ah, there's got to be a way of doing this. And I tried all sorts. I tried wedging the cot against my stomach and throwing myself in so that I'd land on my head. Right in the cot and then I'd lower him down and then I'd have to throw myself backwards to be able to get out and, and I mean that didn't work because obviously it wakes him up because I'm bouncing up and down <laughs> uh, and there was also and then I suddenly realised again thinking well what's my advantage what have I got different and I realised if I took all my arms and legs off climbed into the bed with him first before we fell asleep and then I could lie in his cot with him and rock mm. him to sleep then I'd just roll him off and I'd just leap out of his cot. Mm-hmm. Um so again, was just thinking about okay, what well, how can I do this different What 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 advantage have I got here over a normal parent? I mean, mm. you couldn't get into a cart, John. I mean that's I <laughs> a Pretty big cot <laughs>
0: It's I think that's a really interesting point because it's surely especially with, with children, mm. understanding that there are all the books and the manuals and everything like this is how you parent. But actually it's such a free form thing. It's it's what feels right for you as a parent and how to do it. And that is just a thing of going, well, there's A to B to C to D there, but I don't have to do it that way. Yeah. It doesn't need to look a certain way. It's it's going to be whatever works. And if it means uh, like bedtime for you is like you have to take longer to do it, but it means that you're sharing that moment, then... Yeah how's that a bad thing
1: <laughs> that's it and, and, and you're back to again like we said, treat them as an individual you know each kid and how you're going to do it as an individual in different ways you know and how you how, not only how you parent them but how you do those sort of basic things mm. with with the kids because so
0: you've got four, three. Three. Three Oh, kids, sorry yeah. three um so you've got three kids has each one been because i'm curious because obviously there's going to be a point where they're like oh daddy's different and you do it for the first one, and then you say you're training the, yeah. that one to, to almost give the <laughs> give the spiel. Um. Just has that had to like change? Like, have you changed in how you see yourself to your kids? Or
1: I don't think I've changed how I see myself. funnily enough, a, a dad was saying to me the other day, he said, oh, "I've reached that age now where my my, well, my kids have reached that age where I'm just dad and I'm very boring and dull, and obviously I'm a geeky dad, and there's no reason to listen to me." And he said, "You'll probably never get that." He says, "Because you're a legend." <laughs> I was like, sure I'm sure I'm not but also I don't think my kids see me that way right. I mean in some ways they do I, I you know they'll make the odd comment that you know their, their dad's been off and done four in world championships or been in movies and they'll drop it in but I'm still just dad mm. it's still just quite I'll be the boring middle-aged man that's how they'll see me and I know it you know I can't I can't trade off <laughs> other stuff with them because they're my kids and they know they know me that well and like I said I've got the older boy is very resilient he, he really does kind of hit every challenge and He's, he's a little mini me, you know, hence, you know, he comes last and loves it. Um, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. I mean, you know, if he's told to stop on the race, he won't, he'll keep going to the end. Of mm. I feel bad. My, my middle lad, not so much. He's he's a naturally gifted athlete. He's amazing at everything he does, uh, but his re- resilience isn't as good. Uh, mm. So it's then how do you, you know, the different ways of parenting them as separate individuals. Uh, at the same time, just trying to be dad as well and to, to look after them. Mm.
0: I think that's, that's curious I keep saying it's curious. Because I <laughs> I went through a phrase of just saying it's interesting. Yes. And that's why like my brain went, we need to change it. Yes. But I meant change the way I talk, not change the word. Um, the the idea that someone can love losing is mm. to me such an important idea yeah. that we should we should push. Rather than like I think everyone who does participation trophies does so with the absolute best of intentions. Oh, definitely, yeah. But it is built from maybe an incomplete kind of viewpoint i've always used it as the idea of if i always imagine participation trophies i'm imagining school sports days and you've got the kid who for whatever reason she's genetically is just bigger mm. he's the fat kid right yeah. we're just gonna say it. <laughs> um and it's like everyone else is running and you've got the athletic kids and their parents are like yes you're gonna do this you're gonna win because you're gonna keep doing sports the rest of your life and this kid's like I don't even like doing sports, right now, <laughs> but I have to run this. That's awful. And they come last and they didn't want to do it and everything like that. And that sucks. Yeah. That kid, you go, here's a participation trophy because thank you for at least coming out. And like we know it's not yeah. comfortable, but we want you to like sports and everything. But for kids who like sports become last, it's like there's such a more interesting way of going, it's fine. Like I, I don't want to reward you for coming last. But as long as you understand that not only does it not matter when and it, or if and when you eventually win something that's going to feel so good and we can kind of apply it all yeah um and it's just recognizing that the word lose is a it's a construct uh construction it's not real you no, know so why do we put so much attention
1: on it yeah you you get a different experience mm. so it's the experience i mean uh, something we do again with my, with my middle lads, like i say a phenomenal sportsman you know, and very intelligent as well but struggles with losing so we used to go to the the arcade on the front there and he'd get really upset if he lost in mm. one of those games or didn't get enough tickets. So we started going just to have fun. It doesn't mm. matter if you win or lose. Doesn't matter. It, we're here to, have, and he, he just clicked onto that straight away. It was suddenly he got it. Now this is the experience I'm enjoying. This bit. It, it's not the winning that matters. If I lose, I lose. Mm. I get this experience no matter what. Um, it, it that, that, again, that classic saying of if you're going through hell, keep going. Don't mm. stop. Um, it, you'll always look back and it'll be a different experience. I mean, I, I've used that, not necessarily that saying, but in my life many times. Is the case of well, all I need to do is just keep going. You know, if I'm not enjoying this, or I don't feel this way, actually, I'm not enjoying this experience. It's Fine if I keep going, it's still just an experience, it's mm. still something I could chalk off. something I might have a wonderful story to tell about much later in life. Um, so it's, it's that you know, enjoy the experience. How old is your eldest then? He is 11, 11, so got 11 okay. a
0: nine, and a three year old. So encroaching the teenage oh, years, yes. Do you think you will ever be victim to having a teenager who will almost certainly be lazy at some point and being like? at your age I was doing this and this and this and you know you've got all, you've got all, your, got all your limbs so this is all fine or do you think I'm purposely never going to say that because it almost like it doesn't matter yeah I, well, I'd
1: like to think that I won't that I'll use <laughs> some always just talk about again with, with coaching or teaching people how to coach and use coaching models and it's like there's a difference between lecturing someone about how well you did it mm. As opposed to imparting some of your experience to, for them to learn from, so it's it's that it is a fine line, isn't it? You mm. can tell someone the story that's similar to what they're going through, hoping they will get something from it, or you can tell them how great you did it <laughs> and why are they struggling with it. Um, oh, so. I'd like to think I'm going to be the the, the, the former, but I, yeah, we we all guilty of tripping into the latter oh, so. now. <laughs> I,
0: I just think, because again, adapt adaptability has been like the main um hmm. through word for all of this and it's so true like and it just is but i i feel like the other thing we've spoken about is you can't teach that you have to be presented with obstacles to overcome and that's when you learn
1: yeah
0: um adapt uh, ability so there are always going to be especially teenagers who are just like life hasn't really been difficult until now they've got hormones and now <laughs> it's like jobs and stuff coming up and it's uh, it's just easy to to kind of coast through life yeah to, as a broad statement but um and then you're like oh but i have all this adaptability why don't you <laughs> you know what you have
1: it yeah. it is i mean when i do these talks or whatever i say to people mm-hmm. i always try and include a little exercise or some a way to bring it back to them um so i quite often I'll, I'll get people to the, cha- the challenge of to tie their own shoelace with one hand or, or mm. do a do a tie with one hand or something with one hand because most people can can do it mm. uh, but it looks impossible to them i mean you even said yourself the idea of tying your shoe with one hand is just but, but it's really easy all you need <laughs> is someone to support you and show you and then achieve it and then you feel great mm. and it's then reflecting back to me so I always try and end the talk with something like that to reflect back to me that you know I, i'm not special i just have more opportunity to do these challenges you've mm. just done that you know you've just you've just succeeded in exactly the same way that i succeeded it's just that i had to give you that experience mm. so yeah it's that <laughs> it's giving people the opportunity to, to feel it and do it themselves
0: of course and i guess the the point to be made there is that someone like yourself is met with challenges daily um so you're given the chance Mm -hmm. to overcome things which obviously all comes back to your personality and your ability to persevere and things like that and then other people those challenges will be through few and far between but that doesn't mean that you can't add challenges into your life you can't do things that do make life more difficult Mm -hmm. for a benefit and i guess that's the thing isn't it like life shouldn't be or oh, this is come back. also <laughs> life shouldn't be comfortable because we need to learn abilities to to persevere and learn resilience and that in an ideal world life would be incredibly comfortable <laughs> and there'd be you know it would just be fine but it's not you know no. this is the world so it is good to learn resilience and um, adaptability and things like that but that only happens when you essentially put yourself outside of your comfort zone yeah right and for some people their comfort zone is you know just basically around their skin. And then for other people, it stretches like a mile. Yeah. So,
1: I mean, the, the, it's the comfort zone. It's having that ability to stretch yourself a little bit. You know, we have comfort zones for a reason. It's to keep us safe. Mm. But actually, if you stay so safe, you don't learn anything. You don't experience anything. You don't experience what it's like to lose. You know. Mm-hmm. You, so you need to stretch yourself in the safest way possible that you can. It, but do that I mean it's again it's a cliche it's do something every day that scares you that doesn't necessarily mean skydiving that mm. might mean for some people walking to the cafe and buying a coffee because actually they hate going out and don't yeah. like going into some places first um, some people don't like to be the first one to arrive at a night out or something well, well do it do do it just once and try it you know mm. it's that stretch and, and you don't need big dramatic things like chopping a leg off to be able to do yeah, it. it you can find little challenges and I do you know I find little challenges in life to, to keep pushing myself as well um, nothing to do with physical and adaptions it, it we can all do it because that does just stretch us does just make us achieve more and who doesn't like achieving things you know we all no matter how small they are mm. we all like to do something oh i did that of course yeah
0: and as as is shown by you know your uh, career trajectory doing things and achieving things opens up the pathway to other things um yeah. so you know i think it's just it's a really substantial standard lesson for life isn't it just kind of open yourself up to things especially experiences that make you nervous or or whatever and, and mm. push yourself doesn't mean that you have to do it no. but i think crucially for me it's it's self-reflection is the biggest thing people need to to do you know like say the example of um you know just going to a coffee shop and just having a chat with the the barista or something yeah. that can be so terrifying to most people but it's like that's fine there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> but let's let's think about why it's terrifying and then that can actually open up so much more and then all of a sudden before you know it your yeah, public speaking because you actually love talking <laughs> yeah. to people you're just scared of saying the wrong thing yeah um so we started off the conversation talking about your instagram so it's yeah. an apt way to finish what is the best way for people to find you and also what are you doing now on instagram
1: uh, talking about things that terrify me i mean <laughs> going on Instagram's terrifying me at the moment uh i think i'm at penn stewart on Instagram uh, very much because uh, Facebook I've always used for, for family and friends and things, whereas Instagram I'm very much just using for my jiu and for my, my sports side and any of this kind of work that I do mm-hmm. uh, so yeah at Penn Stewart I'm, I'm trying to find ways of putting little videos and photos and interesting stuff on there um, so people can see w- what I do um, I might even go down the bit of even just videoing short bits about tying shoe laces with one hand uh, do, if yeah. people are interested <laughs> but yeah more than happy and likewise if, yeah, so if anyone ever wants me to come and talk to people or to have a chat whether it's individual whether it's groups or large things that I'm more than happy to do that sort of mm. thing like I say I, I yeah. love being in front of an audience and it, I always try to make it interesting but also make it so that you go away with a message or something that makes you feel good about yourself
0: mm. perfect well the details for your social media will be in the um, description of the episode um yeah thank you so much for coming on thank I really enjoyed that good. I feel like I've learned a lot and uh at the risk of going against everything that we were talking about with ableism I do feel quite inspired <laughs> but in my own way good you know. yes that's what it should be it inspires you nothing to do with me no that's yeah. good I've taken it and it's mine yes um, Stuart thank you very much thank you very much John that was episode seven that was Stuart Penn and wow what what a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed um, learning so much more about Stuart. I had a good idea of, of what his life had been like prior to, to this conversation, but there was so much within uh, what he was talking about I had no idea about. And it was fascinating to just to understand him a bit more, because as I'm sure is true from my own experience with a lot of uh, people when it comes to to being around people with a very different life experience to what I have, sometimes you can kind of shy away and you can get kind of scared about saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing, especially when it comes to ableism and um, people who are, appear outwardly disabled. You don't know if you're supposed to interact differently with them. And Stuart, I felt like it's such a, a perfect conduit for me to have that conversation with, to, to understand someone who is very capable probably more capable than I am to be completely honest like without you know trying to sound um pandering at all like I I truly mean that (laughs) he he works so well as the person to to talk about what that life experience is like for him Um, he's happy to share his story which is not to say that everyone in that situation is or in any situation at the end of the day your life story is your own and if you are the kind of person who wants to come on a podcast to talk about it, amazing. If you're someone who doesn't want to, to make your story public, that's fine. That's, that's, that's your thing as well. Um, but I really appreciate Stuart coming on. It was really interesting for me to, to listen to him and listen to what his life has been like, what his life is like. Uh, and I hope it was interesting for you too. That is episode seven. There is so much more to come, and I just want to say a massive thank you. If you've made it this far and you're still listening to the podcast, uh, thank you. You're amazing. Stuart's amazing. Um, Yeah, thank you for listening, and until the next one. Cheers.